This sermon was inspired by Ann Ford, a beloved friend of Sea Raven and mine. How many of you remember Ann Ford? A few people. <laughs> Doug, her now deceased husband, uh, was on the search committee along with me, uh, brought Carl here to this congregation. <clears throat> the year was 1961. And a very young seminary student faced his first ministerial challenge following a church service that he had just finished conducting. And as he greeted people at the door as they were going out of the sanctuary, a woman, perhaps in her mid-70s, lingered behind the rush of people leaving. Finally, she approached that young minister-to-be, and with tears in her eyes, she said that she was deeply troubled. Well, he said, what are you troubled about? She paused. The Russians sent Sputnik into space in 1957. And now our new president wants to send people to the moon. What will happen if some of those space vehicles fly into the wrong cloud and kill some angels? And now with tears flowing freely, she said, and worse yet, what will happen if they fly into heaven and kill God? The young man was clearly taken aback and said simply, well, we'll have to talk about that sometime real soon, won't we? And for whatever reason, they never did. You know, of course, who the young man was. He sensed it was not the appropriate time to... Uh, hit the woman with the words of the great theologian Paul Tillich and say, God is the ground of all being, that would have been snarky. But I have asked from time to time in the intervening years how one might respond to someone whose own ground of being is threatened by space vehicles, whose faith is utterly sincere, if simple, full of caring and empathy, nevertheless nurtured by a simplistic literalism that has been dominant for centuries and still is, this woman was really addressing the question of what life might mean if it is about to come to a catastrophic end. She asked the question out of fear of course. Now, lest you think that because that was 1961 and I was 23 years old then, 
that we have all moved on and given up all of those literalistic views, please hear the words from Facebook from a relative of mine <coughs> by marriage just last week. Happy 70th heavenly birthday, Bubba. I sure do miss and love you very much. Hope you are having a big party with Jesus, Mama, and Daddy, and DJ, and Davey, and Frank. Give them all big hugs and kisses for me. That's today. We are rather used to asking the question from the other end, aren't we? From a different vantage point, namely, how did we get here on this planet? Where did we come from? And what does it mean? The creation myth stories in Genesis are really the answer from that end. Except if you examine them, they are more questions than they are answers, they are metaphors. And when they are literalized, they get turned into some kind of nonsense in light of what we know about the cosmos in 2021. But let me be clear about one thing. Those stories are exquisitely beautiful and provocative and meaningful and challenging them and challenging and bashing them out of hand, which is the practice of some Unitarians around and about is I think shameful. I personally love and cherish those mythic explanations of our beginnings. And when placed alongside science and cosmology and astrophysics, they become all the more provocative. Rather than condemning, we need to allow our theology to evolve alongside science and help, help others do the same. For in the end, it is meaning that we are after. And the questions are more important than the answers. It's not about us. It's about all of life. It's about energy. It's about death. It's about light. It's, it's, it's about light. It's about black holes, as Catherine said. It's about universes. It's about all of those things that we understand only in part or not at all. And what we need, among other things, are new or at least updated metaphors. And that goes for both our beginnings and our endings. So in honor of that elderly woman that I failed to respond to 60 years ago, <clears throat> I invite us to plunge in to the fray. Author Katie Mack launches us in her humorous, insightful, profound book entitled The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Not to worry, not to worry. It's about five billion years away, more or less. Or it could possibly be in the next five minutes, although that is 
highly unlikely. But when it happens, the sun will swell, it will engulf the orbit of Mercury, maybe Venus, and the Earth will become just a hot, charred, magna-covered rock. The vastness of the event boggles the mind. And it helps us realize that all things considered, as Katie Mack puts it, we are nothing but a small, sentimental speck of dust lost in a vast and varied universe. It sort of began, it sort of began 13.8 billion years ago when the universe went from a state of unimaginable density to a rapidly expanding cosmic fireball to cooling matter and energy which were the seeds of the stars and galaxies and eventually in the scheme of things all of us. It was not really a big bang, as we like to say, but more an explosive expansion of densely packed energy that was already there. It was more a transformation of energy into matter. We use the term eternity. What does that really mean? We want to think that we are, are really made of stardust and that we will go on forever in some form that we refer to as life. <coughs> Who is to say? We've written all of this in our sacred rituals, of course. We have incorporated it into our belief systems. Katie Mack assures us, however, that we know positively that the death of the universe is final. No more blue boat home. No more. So what does that mean for us, for the living of these days, for having a purpose or setting goals or trying to do good or you fill in the blanks? Eschatology is the word that we're looking for. I used to play a game with my two, two of my nieces about eschatology and apocalypticism. They learned those words when they were three years old. <clears throat> hardly an idea of what they meant. I hardly had an idea of what they meant. Anyway, eschatology comes from the Greek and it means end times or the end of the world as we know it. Judaism and Christianity and Islam have in common a vision of those final times when the world is restructured so that good finally triumphs over evil and where there is judgment that rewards those who have been faithful and punishes those who have not. In the Christian tradition, there is the apocalypse known as the revelation to John. Apocalypse is another Greek word, 
It means revelation. And getting to that ideal place, if you wish to read the book of Revelation, which I don't exactly recommend, but if you want to, go ahead. If you want to read that, where it talks about the end of suffering or mourning or pain, in order to get to that point, you have to wade quite literally through streets that are running with human blood of people who have been destroyed in the final judgment. It is a scenario live and well, even today in evangelical circles, but is it particularly alive and well with Reawaken America tour led by Alex Jones and Mike Flynn and Clay Clark, who believe that the end times are playing out before our very eyes as they call for insurrection. So this bloodbath perpetrated by a supposedly loving and caring God is still with us in full force. What Katie Mack says in her book, I suppose will scare a good many people half to death. What Reawaken America is all about will scare the other half of the people half to death. Never mind that the universe we are part of will be gone in, 50, in five billion years. We human beings may obviously take care of business in a very short time. We will do it, we can do it, atomically, biologically, chemically, demographically, ecologically, with fossil fuels, with greed, hate, junk, killing. I'm on a roll. Cynically, we might say, we just can't wait five billion years. Why not do it in the next 40 or 50 years? But Katie Mack, bless her soul, jars us into a different kind of reality with an optimism that makes me incredibly jealous. For astrophysics has a fairly good idea of how it ends, and it's hot. With more and more information being gathered even as we speak, more about what's out there and more about what's all around us, for her, this is context. And so she says, and I quote, exploring possibilities gives us a glimpse of the workings of science at the very cutting edge and allows us to see humanity in a new context, one which in my opinion can bring a kind of joy even in the face of total destruction. We are a species poised between an awareness of our ultimate insignificance and the ability to reach out beyond our mundane into the world, into the void to solve most of the fundamental mysteries of the cosmos and the mysteries of Earth itself. What is described cosmologically and astrophysically by Katie Mack screams at me two things, humility and life in the moment. This moment, this is what we've got 
folks. There is no heaven out there, a place, even with Bubba. Nor is there an exciting hell down there. And Jesus is not coming to be an imperial king, to lead the battle, to begin the bloodbath. There is no such thing as an interventionist God, though we might wish for one. And one more thing screams out at me with a degree of urgency, and that is that religious bodies, and particularly Unitarians, I think, because they have kind of a head start on this, need to begin developing new metaphors of understanding and reshaping old metaphors that no longer work. New metaphors for God, if we're going to use that word. Tillich, as I suggested a moment ago, took a crack at that in the 20th century. And certainly others have along the way. Carl mentioned John Shelby Spong, Jack Spong, who was a friend of mine years and years ago. Jack speaks about God as the source of life, not as in the creation myth, but scientifically in the energy of cells that make up our bodies, giving us consciousness and the ability to divine life and destiny to determine meaning. And Spong stretches that meaning into God as the source of love. Well, I like it, but I'm not sure it will fly very far. But if we be not fatalists and declare what's the point of it if all of it is coming to an end anyway, then we've got to do the hard, hard work of reimagining what life in the present can really be. We have got to write the best sentence that we can. We have got to write the best sentence that we can. But I am adamant about one thing. We've got to replace the old literalisms with something that is so powerful that those who live in fear will not be destroyed in the process. We cannot tear down the old metaphors or the simplistic literalisms without suggesting something more powerful to put in their place. People who live in fear, people who have been uncared for, people who have been dispossessed, people who have been denied, deserve at least that. A people who are alive today deserve more than a non-existent wished-for heaven in order to escape their misery from this world, this place, this earth that gives them nothing but suffering. I've changed the ending of this sermon this past week because of certain current events that jarred me deeply. 
It came about with the conviction of those who murdered Armand Arbery. And those of you who saw the aftermath of that conviction, and I suspect most of you did, saw the black community gathered after the verdict, including his mother, who spoke to the media. And I was struck, struck, I guess, as I never have been before, with the words from his mother, God is good. God is good. And echoed by other people standing there beside her, praise the Lord, God is good. And I asked myself, what would they have said if the verdict had gone the other way and the three killers had been acquitted? Would they have said, God is not good? God has failed us? Of course not. Of course not. So I took that God talk apart. I took it apart. And I said to myself, what that's all about is justice. It's about caring. It's about undoing, as Eugene Robinson has suggested, the legacy of lynching that lives just as strongly in 2021 as it did in 1940. The metaphor for God is justice and compassion. The metaphor for God is the hand of the universe stretched out, pulling people not into heaven, but into the beloved community. In 1940, a poet named Catherine Garrison Chapin wrote a ballad poem for a chorus entitled and they lynched him on a tree. It was a work played by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, based in part upon Dvorak's New World Symphony. And if you know anything about Dvorak, you know that he was deeply imbued by the struggles and travails of the black community. He studied it immensely so that it was ingrained in his work. And the New World Symphony came out of that struggle that Dvorak engaged himself in in the, in the late 90s and the early part of the 20th century. He knew about Jim Crow. He knew about all of the rest. And he incorporated some of those themes into the New World Symphony. And so this particular symphony played by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra in 1940 by black composers was the offshoot of some of the work of Dvorak. The final chorus of that poem goes like this. 
They left him hanging for the world to pass by. But another sun will rise in the clear sky and a new day of justice will dawn on the land. Cut him down from the gallows tree. Cut him down for the world to see. Call him brother and take his hand and clear the dark shadow that falls across your land. The long dark shadow, the long dark shadow. Oh, trust your brother and reach out your hand and clear the shadow, the long dark shadow, and clear the shadow that falls across your land. <laughs>